Hi, and welcome to That's Myrony podcast. My name's Alicia, along with my co-host Todd, and we're going to explore what exactly is Myrony. Well, Myrony, or my irony, are those crazy coincidences that happen in life that you just can't explain. It's also another word for sign or synchronicity. We've all experienced these throughout our lives, but what if you started paying closer attention to your Myronies? What if you started connecting the dots, or as we like to say, follow the spiritual breadcrumbs that could have an impact so big it changes your life forever, not to mention the lives of others. Now, that's Myrony. Hi, welcome back to That's Myrony Podcast. I'm uh, your host, Alicia Myronic, and I'm here with my co-host, Todd Courtney. And we are back where last week we were talking to Daniel Kotke, who was one of the first employees of Apple. And now we are going to be speaking with Mark Cantor. Now, here is the irony: is that how I met these two. So first off, hi, Daniel and Mark. Thank you for being here today. <laughs> Even though, hello. So here's the funny story and why, Daniel, I wanted to surprise you because actually, let's just be real. We just recorded your interview and now we're continuing on. So we got both of you here together. And so, Daniel, is because I met you that what we just shared in your in your interview is that there was a situation where we had just interviewed um it was before we interviewed Erica O'Grady, Erica and Dakota. Yeah. So I uh, came up with this idea of having the Soulmate September series. And the person, the couple that I really wanted to be part of it backed out at the last minute. And so Erica and I met totally by chance a few years back and we continued being friends. And I only, I met her, you know, I stopped in Colorado for like two days with a family member and that's how I met Erica. And then over the years, we just kept in touch, kind of strange just to keep in touch that way. But my spidey sense, which, you know, I was just like, keep in touch with her. So it was so funny because when this, I was scrambling to find somebody to interview, a couple to interview, and I had to have a good story, right? So I asked her, I was like, you know, I know you and Dakota, her husband, you guys are soulmates, but do you have a good story? And she's like, well, we met on Tinder. And I was like, well, that's a good, you know, that's a good chance me. And she's like, yeah, my, his ex-wife picks me out. I was like, yes, will you do this interview? So what's even funnier is that I was telling her about, you know, we're, we're during this COVID times, we're all on these Zoom networking events and things like that. So I tell her about these networking groups that I've been doing that have been mostly based in Canada. And she tells me about this group by Jeff Pulver, the Pulver Network. And so she tells me about this. And then the next day she messages me and I literally was still in bed and she's like, you know, jump on the call. They're halfway done. And um, so rather than being like, oh, I'll just do the next one. I have learned when doors open, walk in. And so I jumped on the call and it was actually um, 
this woman was speaking actually right at that moment. She has a podcast called Grateful Goddesses. Her name is Karen Culver. Um, and uh, she was talking about synchronicity. I was like, oh, jumping in on the right time. Now, I had no idea what was going to happen on these events. And then as soon as that happens, we go into a breakout room. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, I feel like I'm totally disheveled. I'm like, oh, no. So that's how I meet Mark Cantor. So Mark is messaging me and asking me if, you know, if I'm related to certain people. And before I have a chance to even say anything, I'm called upon to say who I am. So Mark and I, you know, we connect through social media. And then the funniest part about this is that I see you and him are my mutual friends because not everybody on my personal page is part of my personal business page. So I messaged Mark and I was like, oh, I see you're friends with Daniel Kotke. And, I, and he's like, oh, funny story. When Daniel and Steve Jobs were in India, I was in India smuggling hash. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how I was like, oh my God, where is this connection now supposed to go? Because I knew your story about India what are the freaking odds that out of all the stories, that's what he was going to say. And then to make a movie out of that. Well, <laughs> now we're going to let Mark explain even further because there was something about parties that were connected to Daniel. That's what you told me, Mark, about the parties yeah. back in by the, the way, day. I want, by the way, I want Seth Rogen to play me. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so... Yeah, well, so first off, Mark, let me let's introduce you. Um, you know who you are because uh, so Mark Cantor is known as the Godfather of digital media. Correct? Is that not God, not, no? Oh. Not Godfather and not digital media. We had a term called multimedia. Multimedia. Oh, yeah, multimedia. I'm sorry. So I'm just the father. I'm just the father. father. <laughs> oh, you don't want to be the Godfather? I think the Godfather would be no, pretty cool. No, no. <laughs> No, that's associated with mafia and negativity. We have to be positive. Yes. Okay. So I just screwed that whole thing up, but that's why we did, you know. We, well, let's we just rewind and, re and redo it. <laughs> oh, no. We like it like this. <laughs> fix, it, fix it in the edit. <laughs> Figure it out. So anyway, the uh, father of multimedia. Of multimedia. There you go. Okay. That, now we're going to go. With is, I just want to point out that that and a six-pack of beer We'll copy a buzz on a Friday night. <laughs> it means nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. Well, we're going to go into your story more, Mark, shortly. But I want to just share Great. how your how you told me how you used to sure. Daniel's parties. So, so Daniel and I are very much from the same world. Okay? And that world was very influenced by Apple Computer. And you have to understand in the 80s, uh, it wasn't even just Steve Jobs. There was a guy named Mitch Kapoor. There was this guy named Alan Kay. There were all these legends that were building this industry. And if you are one or two degrees related to those legends, like, my God. So even by the time I became a Macintosh developer, I had already been attending these conferences called SIGGRAPH, and I was part of this industry. And, and by the way, there's a whole mystical thing about how I came to California because I was an electronic musician. I played synthesizer 
And in those days, if you played synthesizer, you were from California. There, there weren't many other synthesizer people. So people assumed I was from California. And it was only until January of 1984 when the William Morris Agency paid for me to take an agent out to this launch of this new thing called the Macintosh. So in my wedding photo the next month, I'm holding a Macintosh brochure. Because like, you know, I'm geeky, right? <laughs> Product brochure in his wedding photo. Okay? Oh All right, God. so this is to give you a context, okay? Next month, Guy Kawasaki calls us up because I had been trying to contact people and this guy invented evangelism and we became the 10th Macintosh developer. And so we were these things called outside software developers. We would use the platform. The Macintosh platform was unprecedented at the time. And for us, we were attracted because it had 512K of memory and audio. <laughs> That's what I remember. It had nothing to do with the GUI. We were just like, we were geeks from Chicago who made video games. So we developed this prototype. We come out and we go to this building that there's a pirate flag flying over the building. And so Jobs had created his own kind of entrepreneurial skunk works uh, because Apple was a company that was kept alive by the Apple II. So that's where all the money was. That's what Daniel worked on. And, but meanwhile, Jobs had become a rebel within his own company and had created this wacky team called the Macintosh. Anyway, so we go there, we meet Steve Jobs. Uh, we just lost Daniel, well, that's fine. Uh, I'm back. He'll, he'll be back. He's, he's coming back. <laughs> anyway, I, I, and there I don't is. remember exactly when I met Daniel, but, but we met uh, Steve Jobs, and then Jobs tells us, go into that room. And this is before the thing was October 84 um, issue of Macworld. And he said, go into the room and try to figure out who's who. It was Andy Hertzfeld. Bill Atkinson, there was this whole team of people. We're supposed to go in there and just meet them. And I mean, this is literally, we're the first Macintosh developers. So somewhere in this, in my uh, intersection with people from SIGGRAPH, I'm commuting from Chicago out to Silicon Valley. Anytime Guy Kawasaki or Apple would snap their fingers, we're getting on a plane to go listen to their holy word. And I go to this party. And this is, I believe, in the ex-mayor of Palo Alto's house. It's this massive Victorian. And they're slamming down. And then up on the uh, next floor, they're slamming down. And over here, there's a bunch of old cronies talking about CPM operating system. And then over here, there's people talking about this thing called computer graphics. And then over here, these people are talking about this thing called synthesizers. And each of these people are the people who invented this shit. And I'm like, it's just unbelievable as I'm moving from room to room and just experiencing this party. And these parties would go on the entire weekend. They wouldn't stop. They just, you'd, you'd go from one thing to another for five hours and you sit there and talk about and you meet somebody else and he's got a beer down to here. And then you're talking to these young people and they're raving. And, you know, I, I mean, it was just unbelievable mind-bending parties. And I got to say that I was pretty well known as a, a professional partier. <laughs> and I had, I had been marketing my company by parties because I couldn't afford to buy a trade show booth on the floor. So I'd have the suite up in the hotel and we'd put beer into the bathtub 
And people would come to our suite and I'd grab them and sit them in front of my product and show them multimedia. So I, I was pretty well known as a party guy. And so for me, I, I totally got to know Daniel. And, and really, the one thing I wanted to say is that for about a period of about 10 to 15 years, every party I went to, Daniel was there. <laughs> I, you know, it was just like, I mean, you talk about synchronicity. I mean, we've been synchronizing like from Aptos and the Santa Cruz Mountains on up through San Jose, Palo Alto, on up to the airport, out at Max's, you know, out the, the diner at the airport where you smoke joints around the back before people get on a plane or land. And then up into the city, up into Marin, throughout the Bay Area, every time I go to a party, there's Daniel. So... <laughs> That's our synchronicity. Now, <laughs> I used to throw these parties on Petrero Hill, and I had three sons, and Daniel had a son the same age. So he started bringing his son to the parties, you know? So we were bonding on two generations. So, that's, right. That's I it. love it. I love it. Isn't that amazing? I just wanted to do this little surprise for Daniel. And, and, <laughs> like, and, and just for clarification. kind enough to host me. I've stayed at his house. I mean, you know, we're friends. And so just for clarification, uh, from what you said earlier, you didn't meet in India. You just happened to be there at the same time? Complete coincidence. Right. So this thing <laughs> became a legend that Jobs had gone to India. He had done the blue box with Captain Crunch. He had gone to India. He had dropped out of Reed College. He was still learning calligraphy. This is right when, by the way, when Bill Gates was in a little Winnebago out in the desert building this thing called MS Basic, okay? And uh, with his partner, um, and anyway, so the point is that Steve Jobs wasn't the only guy. There was lots and lots of people. He became the most famous. But what you don't know is like all the stories, for every one famous story, there's a thousand other stories sure. of people who were doing the, the what's called the, the Homebrew Club, the Berkeley Macintosh Users Group, uh, people in Boston. I mean, this thing was global. And what happens is the press, they just grab the low-hanging fruit and they go for the easy story. And, you know, Jobs was this asshole. And so there was this conflict between him being an asshole and a genius. And ah. people love to write about that. And so what they would do is they refer to Dan. You'd let me stand there and go, Daniel, tell us uh, how much of an asshole was Steve Jobs? <laughs> you know, and he would tell some Jobs story. And, you know, my story was that when I had been kicked out of my, my own company, just like Jobs was kicked out of Apple, I was kicked out of Macromedia. So Jobs calls me up and says, Mark, what are you going to do? And he says, why don't you develop for my next machine? You know, this is his next computer. And it was, at the time, it was only black and white. I said, dude, I already developed for a black and white Steve Jobs machine once. Come back when you got color, you know? I mean, it's like, it could, you just couldn't believe that he didn't have color in the next machine. Yeah. So then he said, well, so, so what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, yeah, I don't know. I'll probably consult and help some startups. And he goes, be careful. You're turned into a dickhead. <laughs> so that was my interaction with Steve Jobs, you know. Oh <laughs> my funny. God. Anyway. That is funny. So, Dan, so Daniel, I should say, is much, one of the most beloved, wonderful people in our in 
He's, he connects to everybody. Aww. Love it. And it's one of my superheroes. Oh, look at that. How wonderful. I love that. Well, Mark, Dan Mark's our, Mark's our multimedia superhero. Oh, that's so wonderful. Uh, did, did, yeah. did Daniel show you the animating LED screen thing? No. No, uh, we didn't we'll see do, that, Daniel. We'll do it in the next episode. We're gonna, we'll do it in the next one. So we're going to continue, Mark, your interview. So, Daniel, I just kind of, again, wanted to show the irony of how, like, how the heck did this happen? <laughs> so, so thank you again, thank Daniel. Thank you so much. And Alicia, have, in your second interview of Daniel, you have to have him give a tour to his <laughs> house. Because Daniel transcends the term hoarder. He is an, <laughs> he is an archivist. He has got the history of our industry True. right there in his house. Oh, that's awesome. Well, it's been awesome, Daniel. Yeah. Thank you Thank again. You. And we'll talk soon for sure. Well, we're definitely going to have you back because we know you got some amazing more myronies to share. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely <laughs> been a pleasure. So we'll see you good soon. Good to meet you, Todd. You too, Daniel. Have a good one. Bye, Daniel. Bye. All right. <laughs> See ya. Okay. Okay. We did it. What? Yeah. So there we I go. He didn't seem so surprised, though. I was plugging in the computer, so I missed it. I. Well, uh, Todd, was, the idea was that we were supposed was, to surprise him. He was. He, okay. he was surprised. He was like, "Oh." Because I kind of was saying who I was, who we were adding on, so you didn't yeah. hear. So because I was like, you know. When's the, when's the last well. time you guys chatted? Uh, me and Daniel? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so we participate in a number of different uh, networking groups. Ah, okay. And one of them uh, celebrates the life of John Perry Barlow. I don't know if you know who that is. He was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. Oh, okay. He was uh, a rancher in Wyoming for like 25 years. Wow. He... Uh, was the founder of the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm. So a lot of the famous Grateful Dead songs he wrote the lyrics to. So he, he was a bridge between the Grateful Dead world and the tech industry. Interesting. So I was, I was tied in the Grateful Dead world. And I knew him from both worlds. And again, I would be like backstage to the Grateful Dead. And there was Daniel. You're like, wait, how are you here? You're like, it's just so weird. So there's so many different connections. And so John Perry Barlow died, and he died on the seventh of the month. So every month on the seventh, we were having parties at a guy named John Gilmore's house. And so up until COVID, these were like steady raging parties. Oh. Two, three. Then once COVID hit, we've been doing the seventh of the month as a virtual a Zoom call. And, and what city are the parties in? San Francisco in the Panhandle. Okay. Near Haight-Ashbury. Okay. And that's it's given by a guy named John Gilmore. He's one of the other founders of the EFF. And John Gilmore is one of the famous guys in the world of open source. So he invented GNU, G-N-U. And that stands for GNU is not Unix. Oh, because I, I know that name. Yeah, it's very famous. It's, it's a uh, 
circular thing. You can't define a word by the word, right? So it's, yeah. it's a, there's a term for it, right? And anyway, so this is when, before Linus Torvalds invented Linux, they were inventing these new things and you had to have a license. And so John was the one who invented the license. This is like 86. And John was employee number seven of Sun Micro. Oh, wow. Right, so he had plenty of money, bought this big Victorian mansion, like one of the painted ladies, you know, and oh, that's wow. been Toad Hall, he calls it. And he's got <laughs> the long hair, you know, he's like <laughs> the ancient hippie guy. Uh, other thing about John Gilmore is that he challenged the U.S. government in their requirement that for you to have to get on an airplane, you have to have an ID card. So John would buy a plane ticket, go to the airport, and try to get on the plane. And they would say, well, where's your ID? He says, I refuse to show you my ID. And to the point where he was getting arrested. Oh my God. And so then he sued the government <laughs> for the demand that they have to show an ID card because this is back when these people were very concerned with privacy and right. they didn't trust the US government, right? right. So anyway, so, so John is completely an alternative person. He does not follow any of these other rules. And so they, he's been throwing these John Perry Barlow parties. And then wow. Daniel's a regular attendee of that. So I see him probably once a month. That's funny. I and, know. It's... And so Gilmore is the one who started open source? Is that so, what you mentioned? Uh, officially, this, yeah. So, so the official guy was Richard Stallman, S-T-A-H-L-M-A-N. So he was out of MIT. And he said he didn't even believe that software could be sold. Like you should never place any monetary value. So he was really the first foundation of what's called free software. Uh, now GNU said, well, there was this thing called Unix and IBM sold Unix and AT&T owned Unix and this whole thing. And so he said, well, let's just take a copy of it and make a duplicate. And that was called GNU and, but GNU is not Unix and here have a copy. Right. And so, <laughs> So from that came a whole bunch of different open source licenses, okay. the Berkeley license, the MIT license, et cetera, et cetera. And until, until this Swedish guy or Norwegian comes along and says, well, let's get organized here. Let's all work on the same project and make it better and better and better. And that was Linux. Oh, wow. So. Wow. That's, this is all in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. No, I was here. I grew up in Silicon Valley. I just wasn't a computer, uh, a, a computer guy. Um, in fact, I'm still kind of low tech. <laughs> I, I remember, <laughs> I remember Montague Expressway. Yeah, when it was all fruit orchards. Yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. I, how I, it's I was all coming here? Like I said, yeah. So yeah. I thought so the conferences were here. All the things scene was here. I was in the tech industry, so I was coming out. But it was only until uh, the end of '87. Sure, because all the uh, venture capital funding. And all the first shows were at De Anza College, right? Weren't they? Uh, isn't yes, that where they did the? Yeah, yeah. Because we used to watch the. Uh, the unveiling. The Warren, yeah. Well, we used to watch the Warren Miller films there as well, uh, just before okay. ski season. <laughs> I, I sent uh, Alicia a photo of me at the 30th anniversary of the Macintosh. Oh wow! Yeah. And that was at De Anza, and oh. all the Apple people tell you it was a four-hour event. And all the Apple people talked for three hours and 50 minutes. Wow. And they had 10 of us backstage waiting to come out for our turn. And they just <laughs> never gave us the time. 
Yeah. And so when you, at least you see a photograph, there's like 11 people on stage. Yeah. And I think we were given eight minutes for all 11 of us. <laughs> wow. Jeez. Which should give you an idea of how Apple treated us. So that, right. though they were certainly, they needed us, we helped them make them who they were. We always were second-class citizens. Mm. And so Daniel was one of the first people to ever be able to say something negative about Apple because he had been fucked by two jobs. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like you'd stand there like, well, tell us, Daniel, what was it really like? You know? And all these people, this guy, Guy Kawasaki, I actually counted five times that these people tried to put me out of business. I mean, literally tried to put me out of business. So... I haven't bought an Apple computer since 97, since Jobs came back. I, I refuse. I, I have an iPhone, but I'm actually using Android now. Um, wow. But I don't support oh. that. It's a very evil company. Yeah. Most people don't know that because yeah. there's so many fanboys that are so in love with them. And, you know, they charge $120 for a charging cable. No. <laughs> anyway, that's Apple. No, I get it. I get it because I had I was in the insurance world for thirty years, and I had a client that was a, a Mac guy, and he ended up. Uh, I mean, he just loved Macs, and he was his business was to refurbish used ones, right, and and, and resell. Yeah. And then he cre and then he created a, a a retail chain of like God, I want to say about ten stores all in the Bay Area, and he was doing extremely well until. Jobs decided to create their own Apple stores and he crushed them. Oh. He crushed them. He had leases. He had leases with all these big box, uh, box type oh. uh, stores and he just broke them. He, he tried to fight yeah. it, but yeah, so I get That's it. One I, of a, it's one of a hundred stories. So yeah, many. right? Well, it, you it's, could right. do an entire podcast. It's yeah. crazy. People have been fucked by Apple. My <laughs> godparents... I think the ones who, you know, saved five people's lives in the Bermuda Triangle, they owned an Apple store. They owned one of the oh. first Apple stores in, it was in Connecticut. I remember going to this Apple store. Yeah. I got to ask them, like, how did you get into that? Because, you know, my yeah. godfather was yeah. a uh, pilot. And then I found out, then Mark tells me, oh, my software was in those first apples. <laughs> oh, like, every, every Apple store. Yeah, yeah. every. And, and even more than that, the the display so when the computer would be sitting there and it'd be rolling this display showing the software you know or mm -hmm. whatever that was our software wow and so you're so, out of so you were out of chicago you were a gaming company yeah, is that what you, you said know, uh, not a cut not a company i was a, a, a hacker you know so all oh, the you major were game companies yeah yeah all the major game companies except for atari were from chicago because yeah. the descendants that the hegemony was the pinball games. So Williams, Gottlieb, and Bally were pinball companies. Okay. And they yep. were the, they did the big uh, uh, the console, and they were the ones who had the relationships with the arcades. Okay. And so uh, this guy named Nolan Bushnell came along, and he was working for a subsidiary of Bally, and he invented this thing called Pong. <laughs> and Pong was the first video game okay so now that guy nolan bushnell he's who i worked for oh wow and he had the patents on frame buffer and video game okay so he got then bought by bally and they bally merged with midway another one and so they became bally midway and so pac-man was their big hit then yeah. ms pac-man mm -hmm. and then they went and commissioned 12 different pac-man sequels 
Ah. And so I worked on Professor Pac-Man. Oh my oh, God, wow. how cool. <laughs> and then I was, I was the resident musician. I would write a melody line or do a rhythm or a sound effect. And so then Valley Midway had a, this crazy idea. They were going to do a driving game, but they were going to license music that was recognizable. And so the song was, and you'd hear that as you were driving. You know the name of that game? It's called Spy Hunter. I don't know. I did the sound for that. Oh wow! Oh my god! I know. I remember that song. The melody line is from Henry Mancini. It's called the Peter Gunn theme. Okay. And so I programmed it. And Henry Mancini had to come in to approve it. How interesting. Wow. So that's probably my highest height of part of the history of video games. I did so, the first licensed music. So I have to ask, I, I, have, to, I have to dive deeper because it's, uh, because it's I don't know, uh, it's intriguing to me. So you're, because you can. You can. Uh, no, no it, 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 it's, when you say you're a hacker, okay, so you're in Chicago. How old are you when you're hacking? When do you start hacking? Okay, so first of all, uh, let's be very, very clear. The term hacker means different things to different people. Okay? Right. So nowadays, the term hacker is a particular kind of programmer who uh, breaks into systems. Yeah, yeah. When, yeah. when you have the internet, and you didn't have that's the internet. Not, that's why I was questioning. That's why I was wondering. Well, that's because we didn't use the term hacker the same way. Let's uh, say if I, if I called you spiritual or religious or a good person, based upon when I said that, through basically every decade or so, sure, it would it would mean something different. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. You're a churchgoer. If you say you're a churchgoer now, you assume these people are brainwashed, <laughs> handmaidens. You know, like voting for Trump. You know, that's what you know. Being a churchgoer is to me because there's so many of those people. But that's not what a churchgoer is. Right. A hacker simply means grassroots programmer, a person whose fingers oh. move on the keyboard, writing code. Now remember, oh, that's because, that. and, and they're writing code personally on a personal computer. Because you have to understand, there were these things called programmers. They wore suits. They went into the office every day. Yes, sir. And they were told what to code. They wrote in Fortran and COBOL. They typically are working for banks and insurance companies. And, you know, I, I pity these people. Right? <laughs> and so people like John Gilmore... <laughs> And, you know, it wasn't Steve Jobs, it was Wozniak, right? So it was Jobs, Wozniak, a bunch of other people. They're hackers, what we meant was, we don't work for a big company. We're individual people, and we're working for ourselves. We're inventing software. Because guys who wear suits, they don't invent anything. They're, okay. they're told to program what they're told to do. That's a you know, completely different kind of person. All right, let me ask you this. So... You're a hacker, which is basically I was, the, the first software I designer. Written, I, I was. I haven't written a line of code since 1983. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. And I wear so, that badge with a badge of I power. love it. So what, you, now you said you needed a personal computer. Did you have to build the computer or where did you get the computer? That's a very good question. Okay. So when I was programming for Bally Midway, I had a monstrosity that was like this big, <laughs> I had to wear a strap around my wrist because the static electricity, just from getting up and moving oh. around, would oh, be wow. enough to short out the chips. Yeah. The floppy disk was an eight-inch floppy, and it slid into the rack, 
and I would have to take it out and bring it with me out to the suburbs, to which is where Valley Midway had their offices, and Dave Nutting Associates. And that's and then I would uh, bring the eight-inch floppy with me, because the floppy would be married to that particular drive. You right. couldn't take the floppy and play it on another eight-inch floppy. Uh, it would only play on that eight-inch floppy. Oh wow! I mean, that's how yeah. long ago this was. Okay, and this is long time ago. And so when, like I mentioned quickly, that the Macintosh had built-in audio, built-in graphics, and five twelve k of memory. That itself was revolutionary. That's what the Macintosh was. It was a closed system. Everything up until then was with cards, and you configure it, and you get the monitor. It's a separate monitor. I mean, that's what PCs were. Right. And Bill Gates was in that world. So it was always the competition between Gates and Jobs. And that's what the two movies are that were made. They were television documentaries that Daniel is mentioned in. Interesting. So that's how Daniel became a legend. Because in both the movies, which are the Battle of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, the, uh, the scene is Wozniak's on the phone and he's ranting to Jobs, and he says, I just found out that they didn't give Daniel any stock. And then Jobs goes, yeah, whatever, you know? And then he goes, you can't do that. Daniel's like our original people, you know? And so that scene is what made Daniel famous. Oh, interesting. That, it's, it's dramatized in these movies. Yeah, sure. About sure. what an asshole Jobs was. Well, it was, because, <laughs> legend. it was because I had watched the movie Jobs that I had any reference to any so, of these things. Right. <laughs> and, by the way, and by the way, Alicia, that's the second generation of movies. That's after he died. Yeah. I can't watch those movies. I've never seen them. Really? Because it's just, it's just like somewhere between scraping fingers on a chalkboard and stabbing a knife in you and twisting it. Daniel wow. actually like? Daniel actually said Jobs um, with Ashton Kutcher, he was actually, he said the portrayal of it was actually it, done yeah. well. Yeah, he and, actually and, was apparently part of the uh, script of that. It, yeah. yeah, advised it, that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it should say, go on record, that it was Wozniak who did go and make whole, I think it was the first 12 employees. Yeah. I think the numbers, it gave him something like $20 million worth of stock at the time. And I should remind you that when after Apple went public and Wozniak was himself pushed out, he went and mounted this thing called the Us Festival. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, and that was huge. Huge. I don't know what that is. Oh, tell her about oh, it. It's like the big, it was like a Woodstock. It was, oh. it, it was a modern version day of Woodstock. We used to have smaller versions here called Day on the Greens. And uh, it was monstrous. And, I, and if I remember the number, because I was young, I was in high school then. And if I remember the number, he put out like $50 million to do this. It was oh, wow. expected nothing back. Yeah, oh. it was crazy. And, and it was really the, one of the first times that the wealth being generated by Silicon Valley was seen by the rest of the world. Yeah. Hmm. Right? Yeah. It was and, really like, because Wozniak, he, said he had hundreds of millions of dollars. He's like, sure, let's go have a festival. Bon Jovi and the Beatles yeah. uh, meet with, the who and like right. everybody was there. It was an incredible thing. Well, and, and for no records were never made, no movies were ever made. There was no monetization. He just had it. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. It was. That's I mean, you had really to buy. Cool. You had to buy tickets, and I, I wasn't fortunate enough to go. I didn't have the money. But uh, what it did in our eyes as teenagers was it made Waz an icon. 
I mean, we cared. Completely. We didn't care so much about the computer as we did. We cared about the rock and roll. <laughs> you got it. And yeah. see, I was actually, I was kind of in the rock and roll business. Okay. I, I was, I had a band and I played synthesizer and that's exactly the tipping point where it became cooler to be in the software business than to be a rock and roller. Sure. Because sure. In the eighties, rock and roll is very much commercialized. It became huge. And it became that much harder to imagine being a rock and roller. But you could go buy an Apple II, you could go buy a Macintosh, and you could hack, and you could become famous. Yeah. And that was the path. And nowadays, that's kind of morphed. Where, you know, software is definitely the new rock and roll, but it's being an internet influencer. Yeah. That's right. the number one job that everybody on the planet wants. Right. Which brings us to Instagate. I'm so <laughs> glad you brought that up. <laughs> yes. Bring, anyway. Tell us more. <laughs> so Todd, so, well, Todd, first of all, I should say it's very nice to meet you. I've been hearing so much about you, and I've been listening to all your shows, so I feel like I kind of know you. <laughs> I certainly did go and check out Max, Max Ryans. I went and checked him out. So. I got it. Well, Max, let's start there. So did, Max, okay. And so, so, Alicia tells me about Max Rhymes, and then I told Alicia about something called Dear Doodles. Have you heard of that? Dear Doodles. Todd? No, no I, I can't okay, say Okay, go check it out. The site, the site is still up. I'm not clear. It's been like three years now, so I can't tell you. that I have an old friend whose name is still listed as the CEO, and the, com the a company was founded by a young woman who was going to Palo Alto High, and that was actually her second startup. Huh. And so she had created this startup that had these plush toys, and it was about teaching empathy to preschool to third, third graders, okay? And they yes. had a whole curriculum, and they hired screenwriters, and it was basically they were pitching Netflix and Nickelodeon for a television series similar to Little Einstein's or Dora. Sure. Okay. Now, where I came in is that the theory would be that each kid would have this plush toy. And I believe you have a plush toy, right? Yes, we do. Okay. So imagine one of those Amazon Echoes inside the toy. Oh, yeah. With six microphones. Now, the kid's holding the toy. And the toy is programmed to listen for key words and sounds that are coming off the television show. And when it hears it, it triggers something inside the toy, and there's a whole voice-activated AI that then interacts with the kid. And she's got the book, she's watching the TV, and she's got the toy. And we're building this whole curriculum around teaching her empathy. Beautiful. And, and if you go look at the, the Dear Doodle site, there's actually four of them. So they get into each of them is one of the different kinds of emotions. Okay? And... Okay, so it turns out that the girl who started the company, her father was a venture capitalist. Her mother was a big shot marketing guy, lady at a marketing company. So she had the whole thing all paved. So by the time I show up, they got the female CEO. They're pitching Emerson Collective, if you know who they are, or the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. You know <laughs> uh -huh. either of these companies? Do you uh, know what yeah. Emerson Collective is? I don't know Emerson Collective, no. Speaking of Lauren Powell Jobs... <laughs> oh, that's that's her venture capital. Oh okay. wow, really? Okay. Oh, that's funny. And, and expect Scott uh, the McKinsey, uh, 
Jeff Bezos's ex-wife to have a venture capital fund very soon. Uh, okay. So anyway, so I get there and I'm like, well, do you realize it's going to cost all this money? And they go, yes, let's go. What's the budget? So I go and ramp up and I'm getting ready to hire 20 people and I've got the five-year plan to do this. And part of the deal was that we would retain the rights to all the software from age 10 years old and above. And they would retain the rights to the software for age 10 years old and below. Okay. So I was willing to concede the entire kids market uh, in exchange for having paying me. And it was like 10, $15 million budget to build this platform. So for nine months, I'm operating under this. This was 2018. And, you know, you hear so much about startups and how you're supposed to bootstrap and, you know, you don't need funding. You can just go bootstrap. So, and I've been doing that for 25 years. So you don't have to tell me that. So <laughs> this was this bootstrapping gig and I'm bootstrapping like a, excuse the expression, motherfucker. I get it. Believe <laughs> me, I get it. And 20 people are like, okay, when are we starting? And I meet with the VCs and I blah, 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 blah. Eventually, the CEO didn't get along with the mom. The whole thing fell apart. So <laughs> my buddy who brought me in on the deal, his name, Marv Scaff, he's still associated. If you go to Crunchbase or look up Dear Doodles, he's still associated with being the CTO and acting CEO. Uh, but I think they're just waiting for you know $50 million or something. They, were, they really were a television production company. They wanted to make television um. programming. Were you, would you, uh, what would you say the demise was? Was it the wrong people? Was it too much money? Was it, uh, what was it? You hear that all the time, right? With startups. The thing about the thing of, yeah, yeah. So the thing about startups in Silicon Valley and, and startups in general is that there's really four ways that a company is successful. Of course, the idea is very important. Sure. Okay? The team of people who are going to do it. Okay. The market opportunity, the timing and, and how you're going to go to market. Right. And then your ability to pull it off, the compunction. And that includes money, expertise and luck. Yeah. So dear doodles thought they had the money and they were unlucky. They, I think that we pretty much had a pretty good team. I think it's a great idea. Um, now, is it the right time in the marketplace? Yeah, I'd say it probably is. So it's just, you know, it just it was luck. I mean, remember, you hear for every success story, there's a thousand failures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We know that. You know? So, <laughs> yeah. So, so let me just go out on a limb, and this is in public, so I'll just say it. We could do that. You can take max rhymes and do that. Okay. It's, oh, yeah. It takes a lot of money, but, you know, it's just money. Right. One of the things about the investment community right now and the environment is that we always hear about all the money is moving up into the hands of the rich people, right? Well, those rich people want to reinvest it. So they're constantly looking for vehicles and ways and people to trust, to put their money in, to make it grow. And, you know, typically they've got, uh, they diversify and like five or 10% of their investment is, okay, I'll I'll put it into you know play some chips and make some bets. Sure. And the way the system works is that if they lose all that money that they bet, they just use those losses and subtract it from their revenues. And you know the president of the United States does that. So <laughs> you know if you know the right people and you got the money, I, I could build that. You know, yeah. but you, yeah, we'd have to go hire 
Hollywood quality. And I'm sure you understand, you know, what it means to write for children. And, and right. the other key thing that's now is in vogue nowadays that we were doing on instinct 30 years ago is to test, to try it out and to listen to the people who are using it. This is exactly what Queeby didn't do. Oh. Have you heard of Queeby? Q-U-I-B-I? It's uh, started with Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman. Yeah, what was it? It was. It's a new kind of short form video. They raised $1.7 billion. Oh. Wow. They went and signed all these contracts for all this mainstream content and all the content was limited to 10 minutes an episode. The theory was while you're standing in line waiting for your coffee, while you're on break from working. I mean, this is that they theorize that this is this new market and the millennials want to do this and blah, 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 except their ego so got in the way. They never tested it. Oh, and so they wow. launched it. Guess what? <laughs> no. And they are tubing <laughs> as we speak. Oh, he, wow. Katzenberg had the nerve to blame it on COVID. Oh. I blame yeah, it on YouTube. <laughs> if I got 10 well, minutes, you know, I'm going to YouTube. <laughs> you're supposed to learn from mistakes. So right. Quibi is a, is a great win. Wow. So what are you doing now, Mark? So uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I start companies, right? And so what I've got is a new kind of creativity tool. So if you were following Instagram or TikTok and, uh, you know, really it started back with blogging and then YouTube and then Snapchat and then Instagram and TikTok, that whole trajectory, uh, it needs a place to go. What's after TikTok? Okay. And what we know for sure is that AI is part of our future. We know for sure that AI will be around. It ain't going away. And but the other thing we know for sure is it's really hard to do AI. It's really hard to even understand what AI is. And if you're not a data scientist or a mathematician or a computer guy, there's no way you can actually build and create AI. So it turns out that 35 years ago, part of the magic that we did then was that we enabled normal people to create multimedia. And I'm talking about just graphics and words and simple things, which nowadays we totally take for granted. Somebody had to invent it. Somebody had to invent a tool to allow normal people to do that. And thus was born an ecosystem. And lots and lots of jobs were created because of that. So 35 years later, I'm trying to do that same thing around AI. And so what you do is the technical term is NLP, natural language processing. That's what happens when you do a chatbot, when you talk to Siri or Alexa. This is, again, very, very complex technical stuff. So how does the average normal person learn about that, how to do it? And so that's what our product is going to do. It's going to put the context of a conversation as an entertainment tool. So right now, when you go to a website and you ask for tech support, want to order a pair of shoes, buy a pizza, ask a digital health question, you're chatting and you're used to that. And you're also used to in a messaging app, just doing a conversation where one person says something and then you type it back. And maybe there are even group uh, chats, like for instance, in, in Zoom. Okay? So we're all used to that. That's a standard way that we communicate. 
And we're also very used to what is called an Instagram story. You know what I mean by that? Where you see a yeah. video and then they have a photo and you then another photo, it. another video. Right. So imagine we married the two together. We kept it very hip and media relevant like Instagram and TikTok. But we also made it so that you, the creator, are training a sentient being, a proxy for yourself, you know, a pretend character to say things. So then I share that with my friends. And let's say I'm gossiping about my new beard. Hey, everybody, check out my new beard. You know, it's, it's mutton chops, you know. And then so I put on a list of keywords, mutton chops, beard, um, uh, crazy. So I share that I make a video, I take some photos, and I have a whole sequence where I'm kind of vamping on this theme of my new beard. So then I share that with my friends. And my one friend types in, what kind of beard is that? And so because he typed the word beard, I've got a, a, a list and it sees the word beard. And then I could trigger some music or dancing girls or, or photo or video. And then another friend, I share it with them. And they say, isn't that called a mutton chop? And then they'll trigger something else. So I can craft, I can script out a whole conversation that I share with my friends. And see, there is no there there. This, this is completely new. And that triggers FOMO. Do you know what FOMO means? Fear of missing out? You got it. So who is this product designed for? Where's the money? Celebs and brands. Now, let me ask you real quick. Let me interject because I, just to see if I get this right. If you, if you write all the code for this and, and, and you, you throw in the words, you throw in the images and you throw in the video, is this allowing me to, to share on social media without having, I can be in the woods by myself with no computer because this is doing it for me because you've already pre-programmed us or am I missing this? Am I missing it? I'm getting a sense. I'm getting a sense. Well, okay, like, I think what you let me try to let me try to interpret what I think you said. You programmed this thing to be autonomous. Yeah, it's a living, breathing thing, and it's Friday night, and you upload the, the recent version, and you get in your car and you go up to Tahoe, and you you know you're off the grid, and it's it's existing by itself. And then you come home, come down from the mountain, through Donner Pass, you come <laughs> on back to Silicon Valley, and it's Sunday night. And you see that for the past three days, all these people have been interacting with your being. Right? Yes. So, yes, it does that. Now, let me, I'm going to get infinitesimal detail. The social model we use is not one like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or anything, where you just take your thing and spread it to the wind. See, for me, what's missing is that I want to have an incremental stage where I share it privately with my friends and family. And that's missing from all other social platforms, okay? The other thing is that what's implied about learning about AI and education in general is you got to earn the right to make it public. You got to work your way up from the bottom, just like you go with Mario, bro, Mario or any kind of game, and you work your way up to the levels. And if you hit level seven, then you can go, you know, free the princess. In our world, you're going to work your way up. You're going to share it privately, 
And then we run what's called machine learning on it. And we're studying how people interact with your being. Is it this way? Is it that way? How did it do it? And that's all part of how you've programmed it. Though it's actually not the term program, it's trained. Because you're not programming in a programming language, okay? So there is no programming. We give you simple tools to put together these conversations. The conversations get smarter. And if people have used it and it's all working out great, then you can push it publicly. Now, when you push it publicly, a couple of things happen. This is awesome. <laughs> One, you get to sit right next to Tesla and Apple and Procter and & Gamble and Nike and the San Francisco 49ers, okay? You get to have your being out in the public timeline with all the other people. And see, because that's where the money is. The money is in these public internet influencers and these brands and celebs. And what are they looking for? FOMO. They're always looking for the next big thing. <laughs> of course. And if we're what comes after TikTok, we're the next big thing. Right. 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 Now you didn't you didn't get to be there. You get to feed your aspirational ambition, but you gotta work for it. Things don't come for free. And you have to make investment and you have to learn. And that's one of the things that instigated me to create this product. I'm watching my daughter and they're using these tools and they completely consist of, oh, look, I put an icon on the screen. Oh, look, I can type some words. Uh, I mean, they're so dumb, so condescending. I actually am kind of insulted. So, and so typically when people look at what we're doing, what is, Mark, that's too complicated. I say, you know what? If it's too complicated, go elsewhere. Go find another product that does what we're doing because my customers, our users, our creators, they're going to show you what you can do when you have this incredible new tool. See, it's not my job to show the world. It'll be our customers, just like with director who will show the world what is possible. I'm a toolsmith. Okay. And so I'm going to create a new way for people to express themselves. I'm going to make a new way for people to make money and we're going to create an entrance ramp for people to learn about AI. It's all in the same product. And in today's day age, if only one in 42 companies make it, I'm going to try to load the deck. I'm you see, I've, I've been around. I know what it takes to be successful. So I'm going to make sure that we're successful. Yeah, and it's so incredible because it's uh, so many people are tired of the whole selfie uh, social media. I, I can't even express how many people are really, truly tired of that. And, you know, you can actually create amazing content, not just around a selfie. Right. And you create right. this story of whatever you want. So in some cases, you can create about history. You know, you, you got the demographics of the teenagers just to create, but they become creative. Right. They actually have to do something. Okay, so I have to tell a story. First, I want to thank Alicia. She's very inspirational to me. <laughs> and in the past couple of days, I've been working on something new. So I'm going to give you an example of how Alicia inspired me. Right? So the trick here is, how do you make something so it's so simple that you'll get it, right? Because to, to me, this is the kind of product where you either get it or you don't. And, and I use the California surfing term on Alicia. I said, do you grok it? 
And so she didn't quite get Grok. I had no idea what freaking Grok she's was. Le- well, she's learning. Well, you just need to go over to uh, Granada. You know, there they are surfing. And, and literally, I posted it on Sunday. Okay, so, <laughs> so imagine I create a being, and it's called Babe Ruth. Okay? Very famous baseball player. And there's a lot of footage. You can go on the public domain and get this footage of Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs. Babe Ruth pointing and saying, I'm going to hit a home run. These are all legends that Todd and I were raised on as kids. So, but there's a secret story in the legend of Babe Ruth. And so imagine you're watching this thing. And remember, at any time you can stop and ask a question, you can type in. So this Babe Ruth thing, you've, you've gone down the timeline, you're checking out, you're checking out Babe Ruth. It's a story about Babe Ruth. And then up, up coming, I said, there's an Easter egg in here. Do you know of the story of dot, dot, dot? And what I'm trying to do is instigate you to type in Baby Ruth. Now, do you know the story of Baby Ruth? I don't. All right. So the Baby Ruth bar was named after Babe Ruth. Right. And the candy company tried to license Babe Ruth's name for the candy bar. Oh. He told him no. So they went and did it anyway. This is around 1920 when Babe Ruth was a pitcher for the Red Sox. And he was the most famous pitcher. He was doing like 40 innings with nobody able to hit him. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Okay. He's a big guy. Okay. So that's around 2021. They put out this candy bar. Meanwhile, Babe Ruth was going through the most incredible career ever. He was the first superstar in sports. And around 25, 26, he creates his own candy bar called the Home Run Candy Bar, right? With his name on it, the official Babe Ruth Home Run Candy Bar. This company, Curtis Candy, sued him, claiming that they owned the trademark on Babe Ruth candies. Now, turns out that even though legally they had trademarked his name, they had offered him money to license his name. He turned them down. When they sued him, and this, the court was, was a very famous case, and ended up in 1931 that he lost the trademark. He could not, and he had to stop selling candy. And their excuse was that Baby Ruth was named after the daughter of Grover Cleveland, who had died in 1904. It was this whole bullshit story <laughs> that the, the courts had bought. Now, this becomes a, a, an urban legend because later on, after Babe Ruth died and everyone goes on, Baby Ruth gets sold to multiple companies. It's now owned by Nestle. Yeah. And if you go look at their current marketing, they associate with Babe Ruth. Oh, interesting. So he, it's this whole fascinating yeah. urban legend. <laughs> And so if you type in B-A-B-Y space R-U-T-H into this particular being, up comes this urban legend story. But that won't be part of the normal story, right? Right, right. This is just one example. Sure. So, so I have to spend the whole time saying, and finally at the end, if you haven't typed it by the end, I'm going to say, and it'll just display why don't you try typing baby Ruth? Right? <laughs> if you haven't figured it out by then, but other people who might guess it earlier will get the story early. Sure. Sure. Anyway, so that's oh, one example of what interactive 
fiction is. When you can do branching and you can have various different endings and there's just all these possibilities. Netflix put out something called Bandersnatch and that was part of the Black Mirror series and they did some interactive fiction. This is something that gamers and people doing uh, uh, writing stories and stuff know about, but it's not mainstream right now. Okay, what, what is mainstream is an Instagram story. Right. Do you know that almost 2 billion stories are posted every day? Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's the world today. That's what the yeah. youth are. They live in this phone. I now, know. I have, I have some intergenerational dreams, okay? Because I'm very well known by certain people of a certain age who work in digital media. I help create their careers. Okay? They bought my product. And because of my product, they had a, an entrance ramp into becoming digital media uh, experts. Okay, so 35 years later, these people always contact me and they thank me. So my what they call go to market. I don't know if you know what that means. It's like when you're a software business, you have to have a strategy of how are people going to find out about you. Right. And in the old days, you just buy ads, you know, or whatever. But you can't afford to do that. So my go-to-market, and I've got a, a list of about 780 names, is to go to those people and say, hey, as director was to multimedia, so will Instigate be to AI. Now, remember, these are people in their 50s or 60s. They're not going to sit down and start writing stories. But my goal is to have them introduce it to their kids. Because what are the kids doing? Oh, dad, leave me alone. You know, like every kid is like that. I mean, they're all like, there's a huge generational gap because these kids are digital natives. They were born in, That's right. yeah. in That's their right. hands. And so ideally, <coughs> the product could work uh, at all ages. And wouldn't it be awesome if parents and kids kind of did some bonding together, maybe about the family history and a vacation they took or just anything to draw connection and, and affinity sure. to parent and child. Interesting. So that's, that's one of the crazy ideas I have to market the product. But like I said, the most important part will be what the customers do with it. And of course, what the celebs and brands do with it. Right. Now, did you ever learn HTML? No, I never did. Okay. But you know what it is, right? Yes. It's, it's what you use to build a web page, right? Right. Well, in the 90s and in the aughts, the way people learned HTML is you go up to the top on the browser and you select something that says view source. And when you say view source, the browser page opens up and it shows you the HTML that's used to build it. And that's what the browser does. The browser interprets and runs the HTML. So you can do the same thing with an instigate being. So you go around, you just, oh, this is a Beyonce thing. Wonderful Nike ad, or wow, looking dancing cereal boxes from Procter & Gamble, or toothpaste, or whatever it is. And at any time, you can open up a being, and you can see the script of all the elements of how this being was built. Now, what do celebs and brands want to do? They want their message to spread. So they designed their being so that every element, theme song, baseline, camera shot, logo, blinking this, dancing that, like a car going around the corner, all those elements are separate elements that the creators then go copy and paste into their being. 
And then they go over to the soda pop ad being, and they copy, you know, popping the top off the soda pop. And then they go over to the Nike one, the guy's running, you know, with really fast shoes, you know, and you're copying and pasting all these elements from all these different beings and you put them onto your being. And that's what's called the remix culture. Right? <laughs> and so the product, you know, has to have many levels that resonate with the users to get them to come back over and over again. Yeah. So you create a little aspirational journey, you create immediate fulfillment, and then you know, they're all used to gaming. They all understand about working their way up through the levels, the leaderboard and getting points and a badge. And, you know, so you give them these typical structures that they see in games, but you apply it to creativity tool. Interesting. So that's wow. the product. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's like you see the potential and you're just like, oh, it, it's incredible. And then especially if you keep it on a more positive basis and, you know, yeah. keeping positive, it's, it's like conscientious AI. Because, you know, yeah, everybody says, is AI what's going to take over the world? You know, is that what's going to be our demise in, in humanity? Well, we, have to show, we have to show that instead of the company creating what's called the data set, which is what the bots say, you know, um, and, and sure, and, and Elon Musk warns us that, you know, Skynet is coming, that these evil AI people are coming, yet he's got his own brain implant. I know. Cars are autonomous. I mean, this guy is such a huckster. You know? I know. But, <laughs> but, so my, but my belief is that if the humans control the AI, and that the only thing the bot says is what I tell her to say, so this is a funny story. So Alicia saw a video of something my daughter did. And my daughter's got serious chip on her shoulder. You know, her last name is Cantor. So I, I can't blame her, you know. And so I asked, I actually designed the product for her. And for many years, I called it Lucy Bot. Because I've been working on this product now for four years. And so she is so sick and tired of hearing about Lucy Bot. Like, Dad, where's the money? Come on. Why is it taking so long, you know? So she created a little being and she used a swear word in it just to kind of mess with me and also to kind of see, well, am I screwing up dad's plans and maybe now he can't <laughs> use this because I just used some obscenity. Of course, there's no way I'm going to let my daughter fluster me. <laughs> so absolutely, I put it into the video. Now the problem is, then this goody two shoes over there, she's like, you can't use obscenity in your promotional materials. And I go, okay, Alicia, not a problem. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> hey, I have no problem. It's just for it's other just people. Everyone else. I know. Well, you know, that's the thing about perception and media. Yeah. You know, it's it's how you see it, you know. Yeah. Exactly right. And and it's the same way with investors, you know. Investors ultimately are greedy. They want to make a lot of money. And they've all heard about Uber and Airbnb and whatever. And they dream of being able to buy in at a good price down at the bottom, you know, and ride up that curve as we go through this wild growth of the unicorn until we're a billion dollar company. That's beautiful. But you know what? There actually is this thing called risk. Okay. And you know, <laughs> you have, the more risk you have, the greater the reward. Yeah. Hello. And if you don't want to invest now because it's too risky, come back in a year or two. It'll be so much less risky. Yeah, but it'll be more expensive. Well, that's the trade-off you make. That's the way it is. I was, believe me, I was here during the dot-com era. I remember 
<laughs> yeah. So my, my lawyer, Jack, who uh, Alicia has met, um, he's specialized in representing only people like me and Daniel. Mm-hmm. He doesn't let Hewlett Packard or Sun or Apple or Facebook hire him. He's representing the guy on the other yeah, side of the he... table, right? So throughout the aughts, uh, sorry, the 90s, Jack was taking payment in stock. Ah. And I won't tell you, but he made lots of zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He owns a bunch of cribs up in Woodside and on the top of the hill. And he owns a <laughs> historic building in downtown Palo Alto. He owns the Airbnb. Stinson Beach and Cabo. He owns, you know, you know, well, Mark, Jack, it's Jack funny. Very well. Mark, it's <laughs> funny it. I brought up Jack in uh, Daniel's interview because because of the Apple connection that he was connected to the the, uh, the, the law, law firm, firm, the original law firm that turned down Wozniak and Jobs. And when we have Jack on, he'll be the when he he'll tell well, that story. It's just so, so funny. I, so I so I, I've had two really bad experiences with venture capitalists. I was kicked out of Macromedia. And then recently, my last company, uh, we, I hired a CEO. He then brings in this guy named Naval Ravikant, another very famous venture capitalist. And they raise what's called a syndicate. And in one week, because Naval Ravikant was the head of the syndicate, he gets 75 people to join the syndicate Oh. and raises $800,000. So, so far, so good, right? Hey, Mark, guess what? We got Naval Ravikant to run a syndicate. Hey, that's great. Can't wait to meet him. Oh, he doesn't need to meet you. Huh? And then a week later, he sends out a letter to the 75 investors. This company is a great company. They're a really good investment. Only one problem. We're going to have a problem with one of the founders. And has never even met me. Six months later, they kicked me in, out of my own company. And three weeks after that, Jack and I file a lawsuit. Because we knew it was coming. Because any investor who doesn't want to meet me, he obviously thinks he can get rid of me. This is Silicon Valley. Oh, okay. So Jack and I saw that coming. In fact, I had brought my friend Roger Mack to me, who's another guy I'd like to set you up with Alicia. And Roger McNamee wanted to invest, but the CEO would never call him back because they knew that if they took money from a friend of mine, they couldn't get rid of me. Ah, So they fire me from my own company. It was called Cola. And Jack and I follow a lawsuit. We win the lawsuit. We get my stock back and then they shut the company down. Wow. So that's why I ended up broke. Wow. So, so just because I'm broke doesn't mean I'm not going to keep going. And so this actually, I doubled down on my creativity and my innovation. I've yeah. been working so hard. I've never worked harder in my life. And the reason why there is a, a product that exists today is because I had worked with this programmer 17 years ago. And he was part of this outsourcing group that I had hired in India. And his experiences with me were the best he had ever experienced with a software guy, right? Because I'm like the idea guy, right? And I tell the programmers what to do. And he had left the startup company. He had started his own company, failed, started another company, succeeded, made money, retired. And then he came to me 
and said, Mark, this is two years ago, Mark, I'm bored. I'm sitting around. I've never had a better experience with anybody but you. I want to build your next product for you. And so that's one of my partners in Instagate. Oh, wow. Yeah, doing oh, wow. some awesome. sweat equity in India, which is really funny since you're uh, yeah, illustrator. illustrator <laughs> and animator is in India. Absolutely. Weird story, and, but yeah. So, I, so I'm very much a global person. I'm, I'm known better in Europe and Asia than I am here. I did over 50 trips to Japan. Wow. And I was commuting to London and Amsterdam. So uh, to me, the virtual notion of a global economy, working from home, I've only worked out of an office for two and a half years my entire career. Wow. I've always worked from home. Yeah. And so the COVID era has kind of brought the rest of the world up to where I <laughs> right. belong. This is your normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that, of course, is, goes back to timing. So, yeah. so I believe that the product should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be very strong into what we call crowdfunding. Yeah. And we're going to put in the product, hey, if you like this product, we'll let you invest. We'll let you buy in. We'll let you contribute a little bit of money. And because that's the best way to guarantee that you stay out of control of the stay away from the bad investors. Right. The moment the bad investors know, you know it's a two way street. Sorry. I don't want your money. Right. They want you to be desperate to beg no. them. Yes. So anyway, so that's my philosophy of, of, no, that's actually smart. I think on the crowd, on the crowdfunding, because it, it, it makes sense. And then you maintain control too. Yeah. They wouldn't know how to make a decision. They wouldn't know how to do anything. They just throw their 20 bucks in the hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. What they whatever. do is they, they, they then trust these professional investors right. and you get people like Naval Ramakandu just going to stab you in the back anyway. So, yeah. so, you know, I, so I know a lot of people in this industry, I, I'm pretty sure I know how to market the product. And um, well, one of the challenges you have is that to hire AI programmers is very expensive. Nowadays. Sure. Okay. Lack of so, them, right? Right. So it turns out that I have another partner who is an AI professor <laughs> and he teaches up at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And so we're going to open up offices in Vancouver for two reasons. Well, three, because Steve's this awesome person and I love Canada. But <laughs> as he's teaching students, as they graduate, he'll send them to us and we can hire them up in Vancouver, right? Oh. And it turns out the Canadian government has a kind of a tax rebate thing. Now, it doesn't apply to sales or marketing or office people, but to anybody creative, which is programmer, writer, artist, designer, well, whatever you pay them in salary, the Canadian government will rebate you up to 53% of their salary. Wow. This is, it's, not, it's unheard of in Silicon wow. Valley. In, in Hollywood, they figured it out. So a lot of the production companies have shut down in LA. That's uh, why Ernest went up to Vancouver. Vancouver. Oh, yeah, Mark, I told you. Yeah, our friend, my friend Ernest, who, right. yeah, who does the PBS series Fly Brother. He started yeah, his Ernest production company. So yeah, Vancouver Ernest White the second. Yeah, it's incredible hot spot for creativity, television, sure. video games, movies, and and then also like Toronto and Montreal are also huge. AI. And so what I'm trying to do is forge a, a, a to create an anti-AI 
AI company, right? So not a traditional, <laughs> because remember, hundreds of billions of dollars is flowing into this industry, and they all expect you to work a certain way. And I love zagging while others zig. Yes. I try to be my own unique person. I would agree. I would highly agree with that. In fact, the first thing that came to me when, when you mentioned the, the college is like, well, shoot, internships. You can probably get people for free or a fraction. Right. Absolutely. Right. Just an internship. Someone's a, gen- yeah. a junior, someone who's a senior, someone who's the, graduating. The trick is to make it so the job is interesting. Yes. Right? You don't want to be Cutting doing edge. e-commerce or what they call fintech or uh, all that stuff. so boring. I'd fall asleep. Yeah. So I always try to make it so that what I'm doing is is fun and interesting. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting, Mark's story, because, I mean, he had his company go public. And, you know, and then you, it's like you said, you thought you could create the next, next big thing, right? And the fascinating thing about all that is that I didn't realize how lucky I was at the <laughs> time. I thought, like, I'm this genius. I went from, like, crazy man to genius almost overnight. And I just gave all the power to the venture capitalists. And I just kind of floated up there. I was the chairman and I'm flying to Japan and flying all over the world. And I'm famous, right? I'm the father of multimedia. Meanwhile, these guys are all laid. Every person who came in the front door, they gave them as much stock as me. Okay. They never gave me any more stock. And so when the company went public, my wife and I combined had 3% of the company. Oh, oh wow. my God. So, so that's the first thing I learned. Second thing I learned was, you know, boy, my supposed fame meant nothing, nothing. It, 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 you're only as good as your last IPO. Yeah. So yeah. I took all my money and I thought it would be easy for me to get more money. And I started doing investments in these wacky things that turned out to be five, 10, 20 years. Sometimes things that have still today not matured. Interactive music video, Digital City. I mean, all these things, and I'm putting my own money into it, convinced that I'm this genius and the world will figure out what I'm about. And then along comes the web. And then, you know, oh, dude, so it's been a real journey. Uh, you know, uh, all these myronic moments, I tried to write <laughs> some of them down to, to fill up the show with all these weird things. So I told you about the Steve Jobs story. Um, let me tell you about the time I was on stage with Bill Gates. And this is really a, a shift in the future of the world. Okay, So, you know, in the, in the old days on, on IBM PC, you'd have a file format and be like dot .jpg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not AVI or WMV. Yeah. All right. So we cut a licensing deal with Microsoft to create a format called .mmm, okay? <clears throat> that was a multimedia player. Now, four or five years earlier, my programmer had invented the first multimedia player. Mm. He calls me up in the morning time. He says, Mark, you know, when we distribute our movies, you don't want to have to distribute the whole tool. Wouldn't it be great to just distribute the amount of code you need to play back the file? Okay. And I said, <coughs> that's really interesting. That's another product. Maybe we can charge for it. It was 10 in the morning. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get over to your house by 2 this afternoon. And we'll talk about how we can make money. I get there at 2 o'clock. He's already uploaded the player to CompuServe, which was an early online service. Yeah. Four people have already downloaded it. And we've given it away for free. 
So the world of multimedia players never did get a business model because we've given it away for free. <laughs> <laughs> so now jump forward five years. We've got venture capital. They're like, how are you going to make money? And he said, well, we're going to license it to Microsoft. You know, that's fantastic. So every copy of Microsoft Windows will have a copy of our player. That was the strategy. So I'm up on stage with Bill Gates. We're announcing multimedia is going to come to the PC. Mm. And there are two screens up on, on this, up on the wall. There's one that's white, and it's a Macintosh. And the animation's flying around. It's a typical uh, example of what director can do. And over on the other side is a black screen with a green stripe along the bottom. And this is called an IBM PC. This is what Microsoft Windows, uh, sorry, what Microsoft MS-DOS. MS-DOS, yeah. Right. So this is before Windows. So right. we're talking about building our player into every copy of Windows. Okay? So me and Bill Gates, and Bill Gates goes, and now, and so here's the animation flying on, on the Mac screen, and Bill Gates goes, and now I want to introduce the PC to multimedia and he hits the space bar and the animation flies across the one screen and it lands on the black screen and it comes to life and animations flying on. It's this beautiful moment. Yeah. All right. So I climbed down off the stage. I'll never forget this moment. I walk over to the phone. I call my wife up who's running the company with me. And it was her father who had kind of tricked me into being an entrepreneur. He put us, Gave us $100,000 to start the company. So I say, hey, honey, I just got off the stage with Bill Gates. We're famous. We're, we're successful. We did it. And my wife goes, who wrote this $223 check? I did not authorize this check. And I went, but honey. Okay. Now, about a month later, I'm keynoting the first Microsoft multimedia conference. I'm the, the keynote. And on this thing, I put our logo in the middle of the screen, and there's Microsoft. We had a license with IBM, Fujitsu, NEC, you know, Apple. We had all the platforms, and we were in the center of the universe, right? Now, there's a, do you know the company Real Audio, R-E-A-L? They had a platform oh. called Rhapsody. And oh, yeah, yeah, Rhapsody, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the guy who runs that is named Rob Glazier. At the time, Rob Glazier was in charge of all multimedia for Microsoft. Uh -huh. After I finished my speech, I come down off the stage, and there's Rob Glacier, and his veins are bulging out of his neck. And he's screaming at me. He says, how dare you come to a Microsoft conference and put yourself in the center of the universe and reduce us to a satellite? Well, dude, the whole point was you create the multimedia once, and you play it back on all these different platforms. That's how it's designed. That's what our strategy is. And these people had signed a licensing deal, gave us $100,000, got me up on stage with Bill Gates, got me up on stage announcing, and they never bothered to learn our strategy. So needless to say, the .mmm format never shipped. Yeah. It was not oh. included with Windows. And the world went a different path. Oh, that. my goodness. The rest is history. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, so anyway, yeah. so I've, I've had a lot of moments in time where I'm the guy in the room that 
when you know everyone's going like this, I'm the other guy, you know, or like I'm in the room and I'm the oldest guy in the room. Like everyone else is young and so excited, and I and I'm the guy over fifty. And the joy I get is that the people who did ageism to me. So let's say when they're 25 and I was 40, and they started ignoring me and acted rude, and like, you're too old, you're over the hill. Well, by the time they got to be 40, and I'm 55, and I got to see them experience ageism <laughs> to them. And now it's already shifted it up another 10 years. And so ageism is a bitch, you know. It, <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop that. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's another reality of what it's like to, to be in this business. Yeah. Well, hopefully Instigate is going to be your claim to fame. I know you were, okay, so I said it wrong the first time. The father <laughs> of multimedia and, you know, Instigate, it just sounds like such an incredible, I, I look forward to it because I know it's meant to be out in this world. I think that, you know, what we need is uh, a socially conscious uh, social media, you know, a platform for people to share authentically, but really, you know, positive stories and not just be a freaking selfies. And that's what myrony is. Myrony is literally the antithesis of selfie. So I, I know, I know it's going to be a success mark. You know, it's, it's Thank in the you. stars. It really is. It's the divine design that weaved us together and we'll see, you know, how this all plays out. But um, what, what we need is to get a good idea of my Akashic record. <laughs> so he's actually i gifted him he gets it done tomorrow right? oh my gosh from deanna deanne yeah. deanne yeah. Rando, gonna give you a shout out you're but yeah. going to love it I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah it. we're gonna have to talk after that mark okay. yeah. that, well that was my that was actually my whole plan so <laughs> yeah i know it's been great meeting you too i love uh, the story love all of it between you and daniel it's like wow i know can you believe I mean, that well, I love it. Well, anyway, I appreciate all of the stories. Absolutely incredible day today with the That's Myrony podcast. So thank you, all your listeners. And I think we'll catch them all next time. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Bye. Mark. Bye. Thank you for joining us on That's Myrony podcast. We hope you enjoyed the Myronic stories shared today and possibly got you to connect to the Myronies in your own life. As you listen to our podcast, you'll start catching signs that are so subtle, but could possibly have the biggest impact on your life, because that's Myrony. Alicia and I wouldn't have created this podcast if it weren't for us paying attention to our own personal Myronies and started connecting those spiritual breadcrumbs. So pay attention to that inner voice and watch Myronies appear in your life, just like the guest in our next episode. And please connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and our website at that'smyrony.com where you can share your unbelievable myronies. We would love for you to share this episode with your friends and family, and also comment, like, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And remember, if something happens that makes you say, hmm, that's ironic. It's not ironic at all. It's myronic. Now that's myrony. See you all next time.